from understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till. She makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm so excited to be with you. I've been on holiday for the last two weeks. We pre-recorded last weekend's show, so uh, I wasn't here to record it live. And uh, I'm glad uh, you guys all stayed with us on the weekend. Uh, We always try to bring you the best up-to-date news. Uh, Even when I'm away, I try to get the best interviews possibly together Uh, so that you are always in the know when it comes to money and workplace and personal finance. And a lot has gone on in the last couple of weeks, especially this week when it comes to our pocketbooks. Uh, Inflation numbers came out for the month of July, and they actually came up higher than expected. Economists were thinking that inflation rose to just above 3%, and inflation came in at 3.3%, which is actually a jump up from where it was the month before, where it was uh, in the 2 to 3% range. Now, this is concerning because a lot of people who have a mortgage look at these inflation numbers and say, the Bank of Canada is going to raise rates again because inflation is ticking higher. But I think these inflation numbers do need some explanation because they're not as bad as the headlines are showing. Uh, first thing is, is the reason inflation is higher is because of gasoline prices. So it's not because our everyday items are getting more expensive. It's because gasoline is more expensive year over year. And grocery prices, the the one of the things that we worry the most about, um, are actually down year over year. We're paying now 8.5% uh, for the same basket of groceries that we were last month, and that's down from the previous month. So it shows that some items that really do affect our pocketbook are coming down uh, month over month. So, you know, inflation is up, but core inflation um, is showing progress. That's that's the message here, really, is that uh, those core items that tend to only go up 2% year over year, they're moving in the right direction. Food and gasoline prices can often stoke inflation in one way or the other artificially because they do um, move at a much faster pace, whether it be increase or decrease. And gasoline being uh, one of the most volatile prices, month over month, you know, we could be paying uh, five, six, seven, eight cents, nine cents a liter more one month than we were the month before. And that is going to impact inflation. So I think it's important for us to really look at these inflation numbers with a little bit of criticism. Yes, inflation is up, but uh, the numbers that they are really looking at, those core inflation numbers, they're continuing to decline. The Bank of Canada wants in, uh, inflation to be between 2 to 3%. That is their mandate. So they're going to look at these stats can numbers and say, are we still headed in that direction? Uh, some economists are saying that now there's going to be a pause on interest rates going forward. I believe that that is the case and that at the beginning of 2024, we may actually see some cuts once the economy gets uh, back on track, the inflation gets back on track, and we see that uh, 2 to 3% number really take hold. Uh, but that uh, that's that's a remains-to-be-seen situation. But everything is indicating that this is the peak when it comes to interest rates, and that's good relief for many people who have been suffering with higher and higher mortgage payments. Mortgage payments also make up a portion of uh, inflation, so when you raise interest rates, you actually raise that bit of inflation as well. So that's something that the Bank of Canada is well aware of as well. Um, we have a great show for you today. We're going to talk uh, after the break uh, to somebody about workcations. So this is uh, a situation where you go on holiday. I was just in California. 
So I was in California. I was thinking, well, I could do this job from California if I just woke up three hours earlier because they're three hours behind us when it comes in time. Um, and I could record my show from there. I could do a lot of my TV stuff from there. I just need a bit of equipment. So a lot of people are doing this where they're going on a holiday and they're extending their holiday. So instead of going for one week, they're going for a month and they're working for part of that holiday so that they don't have to take all that vacation time. So they're calling it a workcation. And these are growing in popularity as more of us work hybrid or remote. So we'll talk more about uh, what a workcation is and the fact that a Canadian city is the number one city to have a workcation. It beat up places like New York, Rio de Janeiro. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. And later in the show, we know that smoking is bad for us. But what do we realize the impact that smoking can have on our insurance premiums? I was surprised to see how much more expensive it is for a smoker to get a term insurance policy than it is for a non-smoker. So we'll be speaking to somebody from a large insurance brokerage about the effect that your smoking habits can have on your insurance premiums and what you can do to bring those premiums down, how you can, how long you have to quit in order to become a non, be considered a non-smoker. We'll get all those details coming up. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we're talking about workcations. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. They are called workcations, a place where travelers work from destinations abroad to prolong their holiday. With the onset of hybrid work, the popularity of working and combining vacations has exploded. And one Canadian city has been named the best city in the world to have a workcation from. To tell us more, we are joined by Wayne Berger. He is CEO of the Americas for IWG. They provide workplace solutions for remote employees around the world. Hi, Wayne. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rabina, for having us. So, Wayne, I first wanted to start by asking you, what is a, I mean, I gave a little bit of a description, but from your perspective, what is a workcation? Uh, it's a great question. So the term workcation has actually been around for 10 years. It was first used in 2013, but frankly, back in 2013, it would have been quite a novel statement. Um, over the last 10 years, the trend of workations have grown significantly. And basically, how I describe a workation is it's workers who choose to live and work for an extended length of time from somewhere other than their, let's call it their home residence city, sometimes for months at a time in a desirable destination. It can be a new city or a new country where workers choose to temporarily relocate while they work remotely. Now, you mentioned a little bit about how popular workations have become. Uh, can you tell us the popularity of them right now? How many more employees are wanting to work and travel this way? It is remarkable how quickly workations have grown, Rabina. So to, to answer the questions easily, it is, it's extraordinarily popular at this time. So to give you an idea on some stats, nearly nine out of every 10 hybrid workers have worked from anywhere over the last year, 88% of hybrid workers, while almost three in five hybrid workers have actually extended their holidays by working abroad. Um, and over two thirds, 67% of workers have said they can effectively perform their jobs from abroad. And this has really started to pivot and shift when it comes to 
hiring, attracting, retaining talent. Because 71% of hybrid workers who have now enjoyed that taste of a workation and have been able to demonstrate to their companies that they can work extraordinarily well and continue to achieve the results that their company aims for them to achieve, 71% have said they would only consider a job that offers flexibility to actually work remotely and be able to workate um, at least part of the time throughout the year. So it's been, it's been very popular. Yeah, it has been very popular. And I can see that I can see the attraction. I mean, you know, why wouldn't I want to go to another part of the world and do my job if mostly I'm doing it from a computer anyways, I can be enjoying in the evenings, you know, a more a different setting than than my own neighborhood. Um, what are some of the other reasons that someone would consider a, a workation outside of just, you know, I just want to change location? Well, I think you know the first one. If you think about pre-pandemic, when workations were not necessarily that normal and hybrid working was continuing to grow, there was always this strong differentiation between your work and your vacation, right? And traditionally, when workers went on vacation, choosing their desirable place to go, let's say they're spending two weeks in Italy, two weeks in Argentina, you know, they basically planned their destination vacation. They jam-packed each one of their days to make sure they got through their checklist of sights and sounds and cultures and food that they wanted to enjoy. And then they left after those two weeks of full of full of full day itineraries and came back to work. Now what's happening today is people, workers are taking these opportunities to have their their real dream vacations and actually immerse themselves into the culture into the city, into a new country, frankly, into new neighborhoods, really starting to engage and interact as a local in that new neighborhood, in that new country, while they continue to work the way they did um, when, when, when they're back in their, in, their primary, in their primary country, in the primary residence. So having that opportunity to achieve that kind of dream element by immersing yourselves into a new environment has become incredibly valuable. And then we're also seeing some other benefits that that workationers have expressed in this recent study. Um, one, they're expressing a highly improved work-life balance. 70% of workationers have felt that their work-life balance have, have has improved during their workation. The ability to spend more time with friends and family abroad was a high benefit. The ability to have longer holidays was also a significant benefit. And then if we've all been paying attention to the news this summer, um, you see how traditional vacation destinations have been jam-packed this year. Well, the ability to save money by traveling during off-peak times was a significant benefit for workationers. Now, one of the cities that was named as uh, a top place to have a workcation is right here in Canada. It beat out places like New York, Beijing, Rio de Janeiro. Can you tell us that what that city is and why you think this Canadian city uh, deserves this uh, this recognition? Well, I think it was a great recognition that Toronto uh, came through as the number one city tied with Barcelona. Barcelona for the best city in the world to experience workation. So here we are in Toronto, in Canada, recognized as the number one city in the world for workation. And if you think about Toronto, um, you can see why. I mean, Toronto is such an incredible city uh, that boasts such a strong level of cultural diversity, an incredible collection of neighborhoods that are extraordinarily vibrant um, in a city that offers 
all the amenities and the features that an international traveler would be looking for. And then on top of that, it's an incredible canopy. It is an, it's an urban city that supports an extraordinary amount of, amount of green space and park space. Toronto boasted a very high score in accommodations, also finished at the top when it came to city happiness index. And it also has a wealth of flexible workspaces that are available for those digital nomads to have an opportunity to be able to work from somewhere that provides them great Wi-Fi, that's secure, and all the amenities they look for from a workspace within the city they're traveling to. It really makes it an ideal choice for travelers. There's a diverse experience for digital nomads with over 25% of the city covered in forests and an impressive 18% of the city dedicated to parks. So it gives people ample green space to relax amidst that whole bustling urban setting. And then on top of that, you have such a multicultural ambiance, over 8,000 restaurants, incredible neighborhoods, abundance of coffee shops, and then just great places to work almost essentially on every corner in Toronto makes it a very appealing option for vocationers. You mentioned digital nomads there. Is there a difference mm-hmm. between digital nomads and those who are taking a workcation? Is, is there something significantly different about those two types of terms? Well, they're really starting to blend together because the great thing about a digital, so a digital nomad is somebody who's working that is essentially almost completely untethered because of the power of technology. A digital nomad is able to conduct essentially all the requirements of their job from their laptop, from their mobile device or from any other device that they use. So they, they have the ability to really work from anywhere 365 days a year and more and more companies are looking to embrace that level of flexibility because it really drives the opportunity for an organization to manage their capital costs around real estate and then also, frankly, expand their talent pool when it comes to looking for great people to join their company. If you think prior to the pandemic and prior to technology being such an enabler, companies would really have to hyper-focus on their job, on their employee search within the city their headquarters is lo- are located in. Now, today, you have companies that, frankly, open up their talent pool around the world. So a digital nomad is an individual who has that ability to be able to live and work from wherever they need to. Whereas a a workationer, many workationers can be digital nomads, certainly, but many workationers traditionally do work from somewhere closer to their home throughout a bulk time of the year while while they have an opportunity to work weeks or months at a time on these workations in a different city of their choice. Yeah, so it's not as permanent. Like digital nomad is, exactly. even though the word is there, is nomad. But uh, you might go to a place for a year uh, as a digital nomad, yes. whereas I may just go to Florida for a month and say, I'll just do my job there for a month and and, and have a little trip as well uh, while I'm there and then come back to my to my desk job after, after that. Um, exactly if you are right. considering a, a workcation, so you're not necessarily going all in and becoming a digital nomad. You're thinking, okay... I could do this job from anywhere in the world. I'm going to talk to my employer and say, could I, uh, you know, for one month be remote? And then that way I could go and, and do this job from, from somewhere else. What should somebody consider before they, before they decide to do that? Well, here's what I would consider both for employees and employers. Employers who, employees who are considering workation should, number one, discuss it with their manager or supervisor. Just make sure they're being transparent especially when it comes to time zones and availability. Um, the, that, that is the number one to me 
cardinal step that every employee should take, have an open conversation with their manager or supervisor to make sure that you're on the same page. Um, and then secondly, the employee should take ownership, take the lead in investigating any legal or insurance or visa or tax implications. To your point earlier, it's one thing to travel to Florida for a month for a vacation. It's another to travel to Europe for six months. You know, there may be a visa element that you have to consider at that point. So an employee should take the lead in investigating that prior to going to their employer and have the conversation with their employer. If you're an employee or sorry, an employer, what you should need to consider a few things. One, uh, put clear policies and guidelines in place. And these should include who's eligible to take vacations and where people are allowed to work and any other legal issues. Um, policies should also set clear expectations about when people need to be available and when it's okay to be off duty. Um, also, employers should really understand the legal implications. Like, take the time to educate HR teams about legalities and impact on employee benefits like health insurance and ensure that employee policies are clear on who's responsible for obtaining things like working visas or insurance when necessary. And then focus on engagement. Listen to your workers on workations, collect their feedback and act on them to deliver the individual employee experience that they're looking for. And that the last two pieces I would say are put the right tools in place. You know, it's just like there's tools in an office. It's really critical of the digital tools that employees need to collaborate and work with the rest of their team, backed by strong, secure, accessible IT support to keep them up and running. And lastly, and I think most critically, train your managers. And with, this is whether it's workationers or digital nomads, teams today are, are more geographically distributed than ever before. Train your people leaders on how to manage geographically dispersed teams effectively, especially on how to avoid things like favoritism or overlooking those that aren't in an office, for example, working in the same time zone as everybody else. And those are the real critical elements for employees and employers. Thank you so much, Wayne. It's been such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for your time, Ravine. I appreciate it. Now I'm going to head back on workation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good. That's Wayne Berger. He's CEO of the Americas for IWG. IWG is the world's largest operator of flexible and hybrid workspace. Uh, something that a lot of us are thinking about now. Uh, could I do this job from another location? Could I have an extended holiday somewhere? I was just on holiday. I was thinking I could probably do this job, my job from there. The only thing I'd have to adjust is my time because they were in a different time zone. So some things to consider before you actually uh, take the leap and, and uh, go on a workcation. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the impact that smoking, and this includes marijuana use can have on your life insurance premiums. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Huck. According to the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey, in 2020, there were around 3.2 million Canadians who smoke. Smoking can have a huge impact not only on your health, 
but also on your life insurance premiums. This includes those who smoke marijuana. To talk about this, we are joined by Lauren Marr. He's Director of Business Development at Hub Financial. It's a life insurance broker. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the program. Yeah. Hi. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks so much. I think that we're all aware that smoking is not good for you and that we do have to check yes or no when we do our life insurance applications. But, um, you know, how does smoking affect, you know, dollar-wise our insurance premiums? It has a really big impact, especially in uh, younger ages and on term products. There, it can be two and a half times the premium. Yeah, I was looking at, uh, you know, you know, it can go from, you know, $45 a month for somebody who wants term insurance uh, for, for say, I, I, uh, for 10 years or 15 years to over $100 a month for that same person if they, they smoke. Do you think pe- people realize this, uh, smokers realize this, that how it does have this huge impact on premiums? A lot of them don't. Like I'm always, you know, I'm surprised that, uh, or a lot of people are surprised when they see just how dramatic the impact can be. Uh, but it really is uh, quite substantial. It, it's a, it's a little less in the older ages. Uh, you know, someone in their 60s and uh, 70s, the the percentage increase is a little less, but it's still still quite significant. Now, I mentioned in that in my intro about marijuana use, which now is legal in Canada, and a lot of people are smoking marijuana. Uh, can you talk about how smoking marijuana can also impact our premiums, and how do we even disclose that on our ap- application? Well, it's it's part of the application, and uh, yeah, so it's part of the application process. Some, virtually all applications will have some type of drug questionnaire, and uh, the good news for marijuana smokers is that Around 2016, um, Sun Life uh, made a change to have um, all things being equal. Marijuana smokers would be treated as non-smokers. They used to put, and then 2018, most of the companies followed suit. So as of now, you can essentially be a marijuana smoker and you're considered a non-smoker, as long as it's not mixed in with other tobacco products. So if you do... You know, I don't. I'm not much of a marijuana smoker, but if you uh, if you do uh, mix them with other uh, you know tobacco products into like a, a big joint, then then there's tobacco products in there, then that could be a smoker. That's uh, that's that can be a little bit confusing because some marijuana users are quite chronic; they smoke every single day, and but if they don't touch a cigarette, that doesn't that considers them to be a non-smoker yeah exactly so as long as they're using the marijuana on its own now if it is used every day they may be treated as non-smokers but then if they have other health issues um you know that could be affected by the marijuana like they had schizophrenia or any mental health disorders that may be that combined with the marijuana use the underwears may not be may not look at on that favorably. Now, someone who's listening to this conversation, uh, like, for example, I smoked in university. I haven't touched a cigarette for, for decades. But um, what would somebody have to do to then be considered a non-smoker? Like, am I considered a non-smoker now because I haven't smoked in yeah, 25 exactly. plus it's, years? It's, it's generally a 12 months. So if you haven't used any tobacco products in the last 12 months, then, um, or, you know, uh, nicotine substitute products like nicotine, nicotine and stuff like that. If you haven't used any of those things 
in the last 12 months, then you'd be considered a, a non-smoker. And But it can, now some of the companies offer what's called preferred rates. So that's goes above and beyond the regular rates. And that would be for people that have, you know, a very good lifestyle and are in very good health. That the, the question may extend beyond 12 months to qualify for those preferred rates. It might be three years or even five years. And how, how does one prove that they haven't smoked in three to five years? It's, it's, um, it's. So, yeah, there's a couple of, um, uh, well, I mean, one, it's on the questionnaire, right? So if you lie on the questionnaire, then there's always a chance the insurance companies, uh, you know, if the insurance company finds out and you lied and it, and, uh, it has an impact on their underwriting, then the, the, the claim, the policy could be null and void. But the, um, they'll also, depending on the face amount, they, uh, they may do a, a blood test, a urine test, or saliva test which could pick up the, um, uh, you know, which could pick up the nicotine. And then they may write your doctor who would have a record of that. And some of the companies, there's, whenever you apply for insurance, there's, uh, the companies uh, have access to, um, uh, I guess, each other's part of an information sharing. Some of the companies now are even doing uh, social media audits. So if you're, you know, they may do a random audit of a social media account. If it shows you smoking, then then that could impact it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, smoking is one high-risk activity that can increase your premiums. Uh, what other high-risk activities uh, can have an effect on your life insurance premiums? Uh, there could be certain occupations that have, could have high-risk uh, activities, drug use, um, like you know, people that have done cocaine or other types of uh, recreational drugs. That's definitely going to have a yeah, even a much bigger impact. That's usually going to be a decline um, if if you're doing it, and, and depending on how long you haven't done it for, that uh, that could determine if the person can qualify. You know, certain uh, activities like skydiving, um, you know, uh, race car driving, things like that can can impact the um, uh, can impact your uh, insurance premiums. So, Lauren, some companies offer what's called a stop smoking incentive plan. Uh, what is this and, and how could somebody get more information about it if they, if they were interested? Sure thing. The, the, the main company that offers that plan is a company called Foresters. And they offer it um, for whole life policy. And basically how it works is they'll give you a non-smoker rate to start. And you have to quit smoking within the first two years to maintain that non-smoker rate. If you don't quit smoking, then it would basically go to a higher rate or the equivalent to a smoker rate after the two years. And how do they provide you any um, resources? Do they provide you any support? How does it all work? Uh, so basically... Um, uh, yeah, in terms of the resources, that's a, I don't, I don't know of any resources to help you actually quit, but it would, I guess, give the person incentive because the, the difference in rates can be, it can be very substantial. I think, um, I shared in, in, uh, in a recent article that, you know, the, the rates, for example, on a, a $500,000 whole life for a, a 40 year old male would go from, uh, six fifty-five a month. Uh, uh, in the first um, 
in the first two years to nine fifty five a month. So that's a you know a, a bigger policy for a whole life policy, but you know that's you're talking three hundred dollars a month. So that's a pretty substantial incentive to get someone to to make sure that they they stay uh, uh, smoking free. So Lauren, uh, you know, it's it's an obvious question. You should quit smoking because of your health and because of all the other benefits that come from it. It's a very expensive habit as well. But from a life insurance perspective, you know, what would be your advice to someone who is is a, applying for life insurance but uh, continues to smoke? Yeah, so my advice would be to, I guess there's a couple of strategies. The first is to work with a broker who's... Um, who's going to be, you know, shopping the market because there can be a big difference in the, the premiums, especially uh, for larger face amounts between, uh, you know, smoking, uh, being a smoker with one company and another. So that's the, the first thing. And to the other thing is if they're if they're thinking they may quit smoking in the future, what they may want to do is start with a shorter term and budget's an issue, assuming budget's an issue as well. They may want to start with like a shorter term, like a 10-year term. And then once they do quit smoking, uh, go over to a longer term um, or a permanent type policy um, um, or some type of combination down the uh, uh, down the road. So that way, at least they can give their family the coverage they need in the short run. And then um, assuming there are no other health changes, they can go into a longer term later on. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today, getting us up to date on, you know, what impacts our smoking habits can have on our insurance premiums and what we can do about it if we want to bring those premiums down. Yeah, for sure. I was uh, happy to do it. And uh, yeah, for, uh, I'm happy to help out. Thank you so much. That's Lauren Marr. He's Director of Business Development at Hub Financial Inc. It's a life insurance broker. We are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'm going to talk about credit card hygiene and why it's so important for all of us to practice it. I'm Rabina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Huck. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. Well, that brings us to the end of our program, but I still have couple of things that I want to talk about that I think are really important, especially right now, two or three weeks before university and college students are going to head out. Many of them, first-year students on campus for the first time, many of us know what happens. Credit card companies inundate the campuses and try to get anybody who's over the age of 18 to sign up for a credit card. Now, there are a lot of great things that can come from owning a credit card. And I think that it's important for young people to know how important it is to build your credit history early. So getting the message that a credit card is bad, I think is not the right message. I think getting the message of how a credit card works, how interest rates work, how penalties work, that is the correct message. And that, in fact, if you use your credit card responsibly, you can actually build really good credit history from an early 
from, from an early part of your life. So when you're 18, so when you're very young, and then when you go for your mortgage or car loan or anything else where you're trying to borrow money, it shows that you have credit history rather than someone who um, has not bothered to sign up for that credit card. I call it credit card hygiene. So how can we use our credit card uh, but still be very clean about it and not pay too much interest, not pay too much penalties? Uh, some things to understand about credit cards that maybe we may not know, especially as first-time users. Making only minimum payments means you will be charged interest on your remaining balance. Plus, and this is really important, all future purchases that you make from that day. So say you get a credit card statement today and you owe $600 and you make the minimum payment, whatever that may be. And so then you still owe 600 less that minimum payment. So you will be charged on that balance, the interest, whatever it is, could be anywhere from 19 to 29%. But then you also make some more purchases because you've got a little bit of room left on the card. You go out for dinner with your friends. Maybe you buy a new outfit, charge something else to your credit card. All those purchases they are also subject to interest. The only time the credit card company does not charge you interest on your purchases is when you pay your balance off in full. That's the only time. So once your balance starts, until you pay it off in full, you will be continued to be charged interest, not only on the purchases you made, but on the purchases you are making, even if you've got room on your credit card. So I think that's a really important point. Some people may not realize how high interest charges are and how much they contribute uh, to your overall credit card payments um, if you don't pay that balance off in full. Uh, one thing also to note, credit uh, cash advances, which you can do through your credit card, you can take out money um, as long as it doesn't exceed your balance. Those are charged interest from the day you take that money out of the automatic uh, teller. So that's something else that many people may not realize. They may think, oh, I take this money out and it's interest-free until my bill is due as long as I pay it in full. That cash advance is subject to interest from the day you take it out. So that can be a very expensive way to borrow money. 19% to borrow a couple of hundred bucks, that's a really expensive way to borrow money. And um, of course, if you're not paying that full balance off, it's costing you even more as time goes on. Um, you can avoid all these interest charges by uh, paying your credit card off every single month on time and in full. Credit card companies usually give you three choices. They'll give you a choice to make the minimum payment, the statement balance or the balance. Now, the balance is how much you owe total on that card, and that would include purchases that you have made since that statement closed. I would not recommend that you make an extra payment to the credit card company on purchases that you have made after that statement closed because you still have time to pay that off without having to pay any interest. Just pay your statement balance. Your statement balance, as long as you pay that, you will not pay interest on any of that money that you borrowed on that statement and any of the purchases that you're making in the future. So just something to keep in mind, um, whether you're a young person signing up for a credit card for the first time, whether you're someone who's been using your credit card and maybe don't understand how uh, the details of a credit card work. If you don't make a payment, there are pe late penalty charges that you have to pay. Um, all of these things can really add to the total cost of you purchasing items on your credit card. And it's really important to practice that credit card hygiene, to make sure you are reviewing all of your charges uh, when the statement is 
posted to make sure that they are actually yours. Now, nine times out of 10, you're not going to find any mistake. I've found that, you know, in all the years that I've been checking my credit card statement, I think once I found a mistake and it was really not the credit card company's fault, it was the merchant's fault. Um, so, you know, very few times have I ever found a really big mistake. But what it also does, it helps you put into perspective how much you're spending. So you can easily look at that and say, you know, that weekend I spent 400 bucks on going out. Maybe I could have stayed home one of those nights and saved a little bit of money. So it will just make you more mindful of the things that you're charging to your credit card going forward. So practice credit card hygiene. What does that mean? Learn about how your credit card works, especially if you're signing up for one for the first time. Uh, Make sure that you're paying your balance off in full every single month. And third, this is something I forgot to mention, I'll mention now, is that when you make a charge on your credit card, the cash should already be in your bank account. So you're only using the credit card as a tool, not as a resource. I always say that. The credit card is just so you don't have to carry wads of cash around. That's the only reason you have it. Now, I know people argue with me and say, well, it's because of points and rewards and all the other things. That's just a sweetener. The reason we have credit cards is so we don't have to carry cash around. And it also gives us Um, a one place where we can look at all our charges rather than trying to reconcile all our receipts into an Excel spreadsheet. It gives us one place where we can look at all those charges and be a little critical of some of those charges as well. Um, You have to pay your balance off in full every single month, your statement balance off in full every single month. Um, That means you will avoid any interest charges. And you have to as well if you can, if you really want to build your credit history, try to only use a third of the credit available. And the reason that is, is because credit card, when you go to apply for a loan, they're going to look at your credit card history and, and look at it and say, every month, do you just run up the entire amount? And yes, you pay it off, but you know, why are you using that entire available balance? Are you someone that doesn't have a control after a certain amount that, you know, oh, I have more balance available. I should buy more and more and more. So using a third of your credit limit uh, is is ideal. So if you have a $1,000 limit using $300 a month, if you have a $10,000 limit using $3,000 a month, you get, you get my drift. So that is also going to build good credit history. A good credit history means that when you go and apply for a mortgage, you're going to be offered the best rate you're going to be, uh, your application will be approved more easily and it's going to put you in a better position to borrow more if that's something that you need at that time. So overall, a credit card can actually increase your financial wellness if you use it for the good that it can bring you. If you misuse it and are irresponsible with it, you're paying penalties and interest, uh, you're not practicing good credit card hygiene and you can end up really creating a huge mess. So this is something just to keep in mind. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to go over a couple of things that we learned today in our show. Um, I really like speaking to Wayne uh, Berger from IWG. They are a workspace company. They have workspaces all around the world where uh, remote workers can go and get their job done, even if their job is in a totally different country, totally different city. Talking about a workcation, you know, vacations are expensive. You go on a holiday for a month and you come back, the ticket alone can be thousands of dollars. So if you can extend your holiday and find a place to to stay for a little while where you could continue to do your job, you could then really have a nice extended holiday where, yes, you're working during the day, but in the evening, you're exploring. On the weekend, you're out of there. You're doing something different than you would in your own city. So talking about vacations and how Toronto, our very own city of Toronto, as some people call it, 
has been considered one of the best places to have a workation. And as well, I mean, I don't need to be the one to tell you that smoking is bad for you. I'm not a finger wagger, but we know smoking is bad for you. And not only is it bad for your health uh, physically, but it's also bad for your financial wellness because you will be paying higher insurance premiums if you are a smoker and you apply for life insurance. So another reason to quit is also for your pocketbook. So that was an interesting conversation with Lauren about not just smoking, but marijuana smoke how smoking can also impact your insurance policy. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you have any questions, you can always reach out. I'm on all the normal social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also reach us through our website, uh, globalnews.ca. Just go to For What It's Worth. You'll see a little uh, link there that you can contact me. A lot of you have about different stories we've covered, and I really appreciate all of those emails. We will see you here next week. Same channel. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth.